Well, we're going to be returning to the story today that we've been working our way through. And again, I know how easy it is to fall behind or put the book down and not go back and pick it up for a few weeks or a few days. We are in chapter 19 of the story. And I just want to encourage you, you bought, if you bought that book, be reading and keeping up. You know, when we finish, you won't have not read the entire Bible, but you will have read the entire story. There's so much more in the Scripture themselves to be gleaned. I just want to encourage you to continue to be reading along in your Word. But I want to just encourage you to get back into the story if you've kind of set it aside for a little while. Chapter 19. title of my message is Consider Your Ways. Consider Your Ways. There was an elderly man. And he was lying in his deathbed, dying. He was about at the end of his life. And all of a sudden, death's agony, the pain of it, was pushed away because of an aroma that came ascending up the steps and into his room. And it was the aroma of homemade chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) Amen. As he smelt those cookies, he gathered the little bit of remaining strength that he had and he, and he crawled out of the bed and he stood himself up and he leaned against the wall to keep himself standing. And with the strength he could muster, he got over to the stairway and hanging onto that staircase with both hands, that railing, he made his way down the steps, the aroma of those cookies drawing him. And finally he got to the doorway and he's leaning on the door sill and there it is before him. Hundreds of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. He's trying to decide in his own mind if he's already died and went to heaven. (laughs) Or if his wife is just showing him one last act of loving kindness that he can die a happy man. So with every bit of strength he had, he lunged from that doorway and he landed in in a pile at the foot of that table with his hand up on the table. And he reached on the table and he could feel that warm, soft dough of that cookie. And the taste buds already were going crazy in his mouth. And the cookie wasn't even to it yet. And then all of a sudden, he felt a sharp sting on his right hand. And he looked to see and there stood his wife with the spatula and says, Don't you touch those, they're for your funeral. I have a mother-in-law that I could see doing just that. (laughs) Now there is a woman who needs to consider her ways. Her priorities are obviously really messed up. In today's lesson in the story, if you've read it, you'll see a nation that had their priorities really messed up. It's not quite as humorous as the story I just shared with you, but the priorities are no less messed up. We need to understand priority. Now, I didn't look this up in Webster's Dictionary. I just put down some things I came across to define priority. What is a priority? Well, it's the thing that gets done first. When you have a lot of things, maybe even make a list. That thing at the top of the list should be your number one priority, what you want to get done first. 
It's the most urgent or the most critical for success in whatever it is you're going to do. It's the thing that's going to determine success or failure, whether we get that thing done first or not. It's the driving force, or it should be that driving force behind our thinking and our actions, our behavior. Now, if you're like me, you get, you get confused sometimes with the tyranny of the urgent. This top priority is not the same thing as a response to some immediate demand that we're facing. And we all face them. And it's awfully easy at times to let the urgency of that demand, the, the tyranny of that demand that comes before us, get our eyes off the priority and go over here. Now, over here is not a bad thing necessarily at all. It might be a good thing. But if we stay there and we don't get our eyes back on that priority quickly, our whole life changes direction of whatever that priority, priority is. Now, the people of Israel, as we've been going through the story, have had a long history of getting their priorities all messed up. You know we've talked about God's lower story. That's where we live. That's my story. That's your story. That's where we are walking this thing out on earth. Whatever it looks like for you and for me. But it should line up with God's upper story. And we need to always remember, God's upper story is He is pursuing us and wants us back in an intimate relationship with Him. First and foremost, because it brings glory and honor to Him, which is the purpose of our creation. But for our wonderful benefit is, when we are in that place, we live a life being blessed by God. Not trouble-free, not trial-free, not test-free, but blessed by God nonetheless. When we are going through a trial or a testing and we have the confidence and faith that God is with us, going before us, He is going to carry us when we're too weak, He's going to push us when we can't hardly move, we are still in a place of blessing. We have something that the unbelieving world does not have. And the people of Israel have been making a mess of this for years, hundreds of years. Briefly, want to look at some of their priorities and what, what, what misplaced priorities got them into. And this would be in the story if you read the story this week. First thing, their misplaced priorities are what sent them into exile in the first place. If you remember, they have a long history of just trampling all over God's law. Raising up idols, worshiping idols, doing things that were an abomination before God. Turning away from Him over and over and over. God had finally said, enough is enough. You're supposed to be my people. You're supposed to be a witness to me, a living testimony to me, and you're not representing me well at all. They're still my people. He didn't say, okay, next group. I think I'll try these people. No. Israel is still his people. So he's disciplining them. And too often we think of discipline as strictly punishment. With God, discipline in his chosen people is to bring us back into a place with him. That's his goal. He wants that relationship. And here their first, this misplaced priority got them in a place where God used a foreign power the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to take them and destroy Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took them away into this foreign land, and that's where they were. And now they had been in Babylon roughly 70 years. And 
Fortunately for them, there's a new king coming. They've been in Babylon these 70 years. And it wasn't in captivity like when they were captives in Egypt, where they were slaves and were making brick and being whipped and abused continually. It was pretty good. They had homes. They had houses. They had jobs. Their goal in taking them from Israel and Jerusalem and, and relocating them within their empire was to just sort of get them involved. Let the culture permeate them so they don't cause problems. They don't raise any waves. And in 70 years, you can imagine, they'd gotten pretty comfortable. As a matter of fact, most of the Israelis, God's chosen people, that were in captivity in Babylon, would have been born there. They wouldn't have even known firsthand anything about the promised land. They wouldn't have even known firsthand about the majesty of the temple. All they would have to go by would be the stories and the memories of parents and grandparents. And they had gotten comfortable in this place. And then Persia came along. Empires change throughout history. The Assyrians were the big guns. Then the Babylonians came, and now the Persian king, Cyrus, conquered and destroyed the Babylonian Empire. And King Cyrus changed the status of all of the Israelis, all of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he made an edict that all of the Jews could go home to Israel. They could go back to their homeland, back to their temple. He wasn't so concerned about them rising up and, and starting a revolution. What his concern was this. Go back, get a job, and I'm going to tax the living tar out of you as long as you pay your taxes. And he even would go so far, he says, go back and reestablish your relationships with your gods as long as you pray for the king. Their misplaced priorities have gotten them into this place. Now their misplaced priorities show up again. All of a sudden, they've got this freedom to go back to the promised land. Instead, most of them chose to stay in Babylon. We see in the story... About 50,000 decided to go back out of hundreds of thousands. Maybe a few million. That's all. What in the world were they thinking? Why wouldn't they go back? Why wouldn't they return to the promised land? Why wouldn't they return to the place where God wanted them to sacrifice? It was the only place that their sacrifices would be acceptable. At the temple. They were going to be able to go back to their heritage. They were going to be able to go back and establish the worship that they were supposed to be doing. And most of them didn't go. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but I could throw out a few ideas. And I think as we go through this and look at the Israelis, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, we could also relate to ourselves in a lot of ways about our misplaced priorities. Why wouldn't they go back? They were comfortable. We're doing just fine. We don't need to go travel hundreds of miles to a bunch of rubble. We're good here. We're in our comfort zone. We don't need that much more of God. Maybe it was the fear of the unknown. As I said, most of them were born in Babylon. All they knew was where they were at. 
And they didn't know what was awaiting them. And what they did know probably didn't thrill them. As I said, the city was leveled. The fields, the roads, destroyed. It'd be too much work. There's a good reason. It's just going to be too much work. Too hard to do. The roads are destroyed. The fields are nothing but weeds. The walls of the city are torn down and everything in it is pretty well smashed and there's no temple left. Why would we go back to all that when we got it here? And then probably one of the causes that we could relate to would just simply be spiritual apathy. They had lost a passion for the presence of God. They had lost that reverence and awe that they had for the God who had delivered them from Egypt, who had led them through the desert, who had been there all these times when they turned away and he drew them back to himself. And they basked in his presence just to turn away again. The temple where they could worship him, spiritual apathy. It just wasn't a big deal. The presence of God, not a big deal. Their priorities got them in this position they were in, caused most of them not to return. And even for the ones that did return, misplaced priorities got in the way and discouraged them in the building of the temple. They had been released to go back to Jerusalem, to go back rebuild the temple where worship could start. And it looked pretty good at first. They came back and they made for themselves places to live. They had to have a place to live. Didn't have to be much, but a place to live. And then it says they started to build the temple. And they laid the foundation of the temple. And there it was, this start. And then all of a sudden there's this group of people called the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were probably the group of people that discouraged them first. And they were trying to be sneaky and subtle. The Samaritan leaders came to the leaders of the Hebrew people and said, Hey, how about we help you? By God's grace, he knew, no, they're not coming to help. This group was called the Samaritans. That's who they were. And who the Samaritans were really were uh, pretty much half-breed Jews. They were Jews that had stayed behind and they'd intermarried with the pagans around them. But you know, they're looking and they're facing all of these problems. The city's a mess. The fields are a mess. The roads are a mess. We're living in these houses. Now we're getting discouraged by these people that live here. And all of a sudden they got their eye off of why they came. And they quit building the temple. But they didn't quit building. They went back and made beautiful homes for themselves so they could be way more comfortable. Kind of meeting their needs before God's requirements. So the project stalled. Discouraged and frightened. Priorities mixed up. Selfish needs, selfish desires. For 16 years, nothing happened on the temple. 16 years. God had brought them back from Babylon, and for 16 years they didn't do anything. And then a prophet shows up, Haggai, and he comes with a message for the people. I'm going to read in Haggai 1, 
just verse 8 first. God is going to get their priorities back on track. He simply says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. That's not the priority. The priority is that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. He's shaking them up a little bit and getting this priority back in place. He says, please me and restore the temple and bring glory to me. That's your top priority. Well, the people respond. I want to read in verses 2 through 7 of Haggai chapter 1. Thus says the Lord. This is more of Haggai's message. I just read you verse 8. We're going back up now and it says this in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Haggai is speaking as God's prophet. This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, It is time. For yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? He's getting in their face a little bit. And he says, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Look at what you're doing. He says, You have sown much, but you don't harvest much. You eat, but there's not enough food to satisfy you. You drink, there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one can stay warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put him into a purse with holes. In other words, things aren't going well for you. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in verse 7, consider your ways. In three verses, he says twice to them, Consider your ways. And then in verses 7 through 11, things were difficult. I'm going to read starting at verse 9. He says, You look for much, but hold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you run to your own houses. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, and on the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, and on the oil of what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. God goes through this list of things that the people have been using for reasons not to be doing the work. We got a lot of other stuff to do. We can hardly make enough to eat. We can hardly grow enough to eat. There's not enough, uh, not enough on the olive trees to even keep the presses going. The little bit of money we have, we can't even keep warm. And God is saying, your excuses are the exact reason you need to do what I'm asking you to do. They aren't the reasons to avoid it. They're the reasons you should do it. God had taken, and He says, I have done these things to get your attention again. Now I want, to understand, I want you to understand this much, though, for sure here. Not everything that's bad or any trial and test we go through is punishment from God to draw us back to Him. We go through lots of trials and tests to build faith and for lots of reasons. But in this case, He's saying, this, these things, they're from Me. 
I think you ought to listen and reprioritize your lives. And when you do, you will be blessed. God spelled out his reasons for wanting them to build a temple. In verse 8 that I read, so that I can take pleasure in it and be honored and glorified. To do God's will in spite of opposition, in spite of fear, in spite of struggles, is an act of faith. And we are called to be a people of faith. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. There will be trials. There will be troubles. So the prophet came and said, you know what? Your priorities are out of order. All the things that you're using as excuses are caused by God to get you back on the right track. And fortunately, the people respond well. The people responded by faith. They heard the words of Haggai and they responded. And they got it in order so that they would get back to work and build the temple. Sixteen years had passed and they obeyed the Lord because they feared Him. And I know in adult Sunday school you were talking about a fear of the Lord. Now they weren't afraid of the big stick even though He was disciplining His children. But what came upon them once again was a fear and an awe and a reverence. Maybe all of a sudden they started to remember all his promises, all that he had done for them in the past. But there was a reverence for the Lord. And they realigned their priorities based on God's word and God's will. It's a good guide to align our priorities. But they just didn't write them down on a stone tablet or on a piece of papyrus. It says they acted upon them. They acted upon them. They didn't just say, oh yeah, great idea. Let's make a new list of priorities and then go on and live in the way they did. It says they acted upon them. They didn't say, just say they believed him. They said, yeah, we believe you. And their outward actions proved it. And when we rearrange our priorities, it's the outward actions that mean something. Best intentions don't count for anything. It's what we do when those priorities are rearranged. And we need to remember, even today, because sometimes we can get so frustrated when we we are hearing a word from somebody or we're trying to share something with somebody and, and we know it to be true and we want them to understand and we want them to change You know, Haggai was a prophet. Zechariah was another one speaking into the people at this time. They were prophets from God. They were speaking the words of God. But it wasn't them or the words that changed their hearts. You know what changed their hearts? God. The Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can change a heart. And you know, when you're ministering to people, ministering to someone, and you really have got a word from the Lord... You give the word and that's all you can do. God's got to change their heart. You know, when it's you or it's me and we know something's wrong and our priorities are messed up, we need to cry out to God, Lord, change my heart. I need to confess where I'm at. I need to get right with you. I am so, so sorry that I've gotten so far off track. Change my heart. He will change your heart. In a heartbeat. Because that's what he wants. To get us on track. Changing of our heart. Once again in the story, if you recall, they got back to work. 
there's a little disappointment rising up again. And it's kind of interesting because the disappointment this time came from within. And for me, an interesting picture came to my mind from what I see in the Scripture. What happened in the Scripture was this. Some of the older people that had came back, they remembered the temple. They remembered the original temple. They remembered the glory of the temple. The gold, the silver, the size of this majestic temple. And they saw the foundation that had been laid. And in comparison, it looked like a piddly little nothing. And God had to deal with that. And he did deal with them. In chapter 2 of Haggai, verse 4, but I'm going to back up to verse 3. He says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? He knew what was going on in their hearts. He says, Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? I mean, can you imagine if you had a a $10 million mansion and the thing burnt down? And someone says, you just go away for a while. When you come back, we're going to build you a new home. And you come back and there's a little thousand square foot house. How many of us would be praising God and giving Him the glory or going, oh my, what? That's the dog's house. Where's ours? That's kind of what they felt. And God knew it. But here's what He said. Take courage. Take courage, Zerubbabel, the leader of the Jews. He says, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all of you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. The picture that came to my mind may not be one you can even relate to. I don't know. But there's those times in your life in your spiritual walk. And oftentimes it's when you're in one of those valleys and you're going through a real trial and a test, but something happens and there's this breakthrough and you just sense the presence of, the God, of God so powerfully. You can't, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't even smell it necessarily, but you just know it's there. And it's awesome. And then life goes on. And it passes. And all of a sudden you realize my priorities got messed up. I need to get back. But what I remember is that moment. That glorious moment where in reality God knew exactly what I needed and He blessed my socks off with it. But I'm not going to walk in that all the time, but I'm going to be, I can walk in His presence all the time. And God says, Go to work. It doesn't look like with the old one, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is, I am with you. And that can be hard for us when we're trying to get back on track. We're trying to get our priorities and back in the right spot, and, and it's like, it's just not what it should be. It's not what I remember. It was so good before. Forget about that. Don't look back. Go forward. What God has for you is probably way better once we get there. But we have to get our priorities in place to go forward. You know, if you haven't connected the dots already to see how similar we are to the Hebrew people, I'm going to do it for you. We're like them. Our priorities, when we read in the Bible, give careful thought to or consider your ways, that's a 
blaring message for us as children of God. Our priorities. Wouldn't it be nice if you and I could open our Bibles to Galatians 3.12 through 18 and there's a list of priorities. Now they're not there, so don't look. Wouldn't that be nice? We don't get that in the Bible. But what we do get in the Bible are very clear biblical principles for us to apply to ourselves individually to get our priorities in the right place. Now in doing this, it's really easy to get legalistic. God doesn't like that a bit. So it's not about getting legalistic. But it's also very easy to get too simplistic. And really the priorities are just fluff. And we can get to a place where they're not necessarily legalistic. It's not necessarily too simplistic. But they're meaningless. Lackadaisical. We're playing a spiritual game. Now as the seasons of our life change, our priorities will change. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Be single, get married, things change. Be married, have kids, things change. Experience serious illness or death of loved ones, things change. Our priorities can change. However, there are some clear priorities that should always remain. These core principles that should always remain and they should be aligned with the will of God. And the first one I can give you and I can give you all the biblical support you need for this first priority. What is that? Our relationship with the Lord should be priority number one. When that's messed up, eventually everything else will get messed up. You might coast for a while, might even have a little few little mountaintop experiences, but you will find a place to crash eventually. That sounds good, but what does it look like for your top priority to be your relationship with God? I don't know. I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know what it looks like in the time of life you're in. You know, there isn't X number of hours that you're supposed to be spending in prayer or spending in the Word or spending doing ministry. It's not there. We can get legalistic if we want to, Or we can get simplistic and just walk around saying, praise Jesus. Neither one of them work. What does it look like for you to have your relationship with God priority number one? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What's it look like? God, show me what it looks like. At this particular time in the history of Israel, priority number one was go back and build that temple so that you can worship You can reconnect with your heritage. You can once again become a testimony and witness of what my children are supposed to look like. That was priority number one. Later on in their history, that's not necessarily priority number one, the temple. Once Jesus Christ came to earth, that didn't become priority number one at all. But what's priority number one? Relationship with God. What's it look like for you? I don't know. But I know in it, God comes first. Now, there are a couple things that I've mentioned before, and I believe there's a lot of truth to it, but it can be a little bit deceptive. 
If you want to check your priorities out, how many of you have heard this before? Get out your checkbook and open it up for me. We'll test your priorities real quick. Or give me your day planner, your calendar. Let's see what your priorities are. Now we can do those two things, but that can be deceiving. Because you could spend all your money on Christian things and do it for all the wrong reasons. You may go to church seven times a week and doing it for all the wrong reasons. You know, a man could be working two eight-hour-a-day jobs, working his tail off to make some money, and he could be doing it for a couple of reasons. One, he's a greedy person and wants as much as he can get, and he's ignoring his wife and family because they're a pain in the rear end. Or he could be doing the exact same thing because he wants to support his family so that his wife doesn't have to work, so he could, she could stay home and be a stay-at-home mom if that's her heart's desire. Same picture, totally different motives. It comes back to a hard issue. A hard issue. This is not a sermon about giving, but there is so much truth in the reality of what we spend our money on and what we spend our time doing will give you a pretty good picture of most of us and our priorities. How we spend our money. You know, Cindy and I went out for supper Saturday night, and then we went to a movie. Somebody blessed us with two tickets to the movie. Supper cost us 40 bucks. How many of us write a check for 40 bucks and put in that box on a Sunday morning? Because it's too darn much. Or because I don't have enough money at home. There's a strong principle in the Bible, it's called tithing. You want to open the windows of heaven and God's blessing, it's tithing. You know, Malachi, a prophet who followed these two, was addressing an issue like this with the Hebrew people. And boy, did he get in their face. He says, you're having all these problems. you got all these troubles. What's wrong with you people? Matter of fact, I'm going to bless you with it. Good, some of you can still laugh. (laughs) Starting in verse 6 of chapter 3 of Malachi, he says, For I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, you're lucky. You're lucky I don't consume you. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from me my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But then you say, how shall we return? And now this is the prophet speaking the words of the Lord. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings have you robbed me. You are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. There's not many places in Scripture you are going to find the Lord saying, test me in this. He says, this principle will work. Fortunately, we are not under the old law. We are not under... This was the law for them. If they were going to fulfill the law, they needed to tithe one-tenth of everything they had. If they were a, they raised sheep, they gave one out of ten lambs to the Lord. You raised ox, that's what you did. If you got 40 bushels of wheat, four bushels of wheat belonged to the Lord. It was the law. Why? To punish them? Of course not. It was to show that they trusted the Lord. It was to build their faith. Test me in this. Will I not meet your needs? Will I not bless you? Will you not have an abundance? 
test me in this. And he says, test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessings until they overflow. We are not under the law. Don't hear me getting legalistic here. I am not getting legalistic. I am not saying if you don't tithe, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there are principles in the Word of God that need to be prioritized. And tithing is a powerful principle. You know, and these people were just like you or I. Geez, it's getting tougher and tougher every year to make a living. What's the deal here? And finally, God got tired of hearing him say that, and he sent a prophet and said, here's the deal. You're violating the law. You know, one of the best things that you can say to, say to someone if they come to you for financial counsel is this. Are you giving to the Lord? How much are you giving to the Lord? Well, as soon as I have enough money, you'll never have enough money if that's your excuse. <laughs> never. Uh, if I was a millionaire, it'd be easy. No, wouldn't your tithe would be a hundred grand? If you can't write one out for a hundred dollars, you can't write one out for a hundred grand. I guarantee it. I know I couldn't. God's saying, test me in this. And in the principle in the New Testament, the church is the picture of that storehouse. He's saying, bring your tithes to the storehouse. We're in the new covenant, a bigger and better covenant. It's a principle. Tithes should be the minimum for New Testament believers. We are to give tithes, offerings, and alms. Why? So that we can build a better building and you can pay me more. What do you think? Of course not. The work of the ministry. Guess how all those things took place this last week? People are giving to the church. We're able to sponsor the event in Tracy and see 120 kids bow their knees on a gymnasium floor. We're able to bring in Jason Gray and, and for $5 a ticket. You can't bowl one line of bowling for $5. Why? Because people give. And I just want to encourage you, it's the work of the ministry that gets blessed. God gets blessed. And you get blessed. The principle, test me in this. And see, no church runs on... <laughs> I was going to say faith. That would have been a mistake. <laughs> Air and water. Money is a tool. How many tools do you need in your shed? Are you willing to give one away to someone who can do something that they have to get done? This church can't function without our giving, our tithing, our offering. It can't function. And as we get more people, we have to invest more money. Anybody in here's the electric bill went up? Ours is over $700 a month here at the church. Used to be $350. And you know what's the truth? We met with a guy from Building God's Way. And this struck me, and I'll share it with you. I wasn't intending to go this way. <laughs> we'll hope it's God a little bit. <laughs> but he says, you know, one of the sad things they see when they come in to help churches decide what do they need to build, what do they need to remodel, what can they do to better serve the body of Christ and the people that are drawn to their church. To their church. And he says, we see this too many times. Because of generational things, because of cultural things, because people get old and die. But he says, here's what happened. We go in and they build this beautiful building and the church doubles in size. Doubles in size and giving goes up 10%. And the church can't pay their mortgage. And they close the door. It's the saddest thing we do in our business. He says, that's why we go through your finances 
with you over and over before we ever encourage you to do anything. And it's just a reality. This isn't a, a spanking. It's just a reality. We know that when people come as new believers, you know, tithing is as foreign to them as anything you can imagine. And that's okay. Start where you can. How we spend our money does reveal our heart, and so does how we spend our time. You know, I'll spend 200 bucks, get in a car, and drive eight hours round trip to go to a football game, buy a couple tickets. Well, the tickets, if, I, if they're given to me, I can spend 200 bucks. If they're not given to me, I've got to spend three or 400 bucks. And I'll pencil it in six months ahead if somebody tells me I can go on their ticket. What do we pencil in for our church things, our ministry things? Our time is also, but it needs to be in balance. And really, hear, hear this as if you, heard, if you didn't hear any of the rest, or if you didn't, now you're mad. I want you to hear that it's an attitude of your heart. It's not about a dollar amount. It's not about how many hours a week. It's a heart issue. Where's your heart? I trust you, Lord, for everything. Everything is a gift from you, except I'm going to keep my checkbook under a lock and key. Everything's for you, Lord, except I've got a whole lot of fun things planned and I don't have time for what you want me to do. One of our priorities we need to get back in place is when we feel like the Lord is telling us to do something, we need to do it. We need to not procrastinate. I want to encourage you. You want to be blessed? You want to be one of those people that can stand up in front of a group of people and tell them all the exciting things God used you to do? How you got to share the Lord with this person or this person or this person or this person? Make yourself available. Hear the Lord. Do it. You'll be shocked. If they don't respond, that's God's fault. Because you can't change your heart. But I tell you what, those people that have the most amazing testimonies that can go on and on and on and on and on and on about all these great things they've been able to do with the Lord, truth be known, they had a lot of things that didn't happen that you're going to share as a powerful testimony. But they were willing to keep going because they felt the Lord telling them that. Changing our priorities, do what the Lord expects us to do or asks us to do. And listen to this, you should expect opposition. You should expect struggles. Count on it. You know, this idea that Christians are going to live in this happy, 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 happy place with never any problems is baloney. It's not biblical. It's heresy is what it is. We are going to be tried and we are going to go through struggles. I think Paul was a more godly man than me, I have to confess. But he went through way more struggles than I did and that I have. Probably ever will. So expect obstacles as you realign your priorities. One of the things that's really hard for most of us, because we like, I hope we love people, love each other, it's hard sometimes to say no to stuff. That's why it's important to prioritize. As a church, one of the hardest things we do is, how do we narrow our focus, Lord? What do you want us to do? Because we can't do everything. And a lot of good things become distractions for God things. And that's hard. hard. How, how do you know? Well, pray. That's a good place to start. We've got we to guard our hearts, guard our time, guard our... Fi- there is a million... We get so much mail from ministries here at the church that wanting to know if they can come and speak here or can we support them. And I'd say 95% of them are great. But you can't do that. So you have to really, Lord, what do you want us to do? And that's the way it is in our personal lives. When you realign your priorities, if you choose to do this, here's one of the things I think needs to be on our list. 
Who can I have hold me accountable? Who can I have hold me accountable? Who can come up to me and say, Mike, you know, you've told me these are your priorities. I don't, I'm not seeing it right now. I think you're going in the wrong direction. We need somebody. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. But we need a brother and sister in Christ. Somebody that we can trust. And we need to be in a place where we also can lovingly go up to a brother and sister in Christ and say, Brother, you know I love you. Sister, you know I love you. And I know your heart's really, your heart's desire is this. But I'm just wondering, do you see what might be happening here? How many of us could take that if someone walked up to us and said that? We need to be in a place where we not just can take it, we desire it. We want to stay on track. We want our priorities right. We want to bring glory and honor to God. That's what we were created to do. I think I better quit. Because who knows what I'll say next. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that the, the words that I've shared today, God, are received in the right spirit the way that I intend them, Lord. And if there's anything that I said that was not of you, I pray it would just fall to the ground and couldn't do any damage in anybody's life. God, I thank you that you are a God that gives so many opportunities. And Lord, that this desire of yours that directs, it seems, everything to have relationship with us is out of love. God, I know some people here don't really understand what the love of the Lord is, but God, I pray you would touch them let them know what unconditional love feels like. Love without judgment, love without condemnation. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we go through our priorities. God, I thank you for the financial blessings in our body, in our families, and in this church that you have provided just as you promised. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to any area of our life that's not in alignment with what you have for us. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that no spirit of criticism or judgment could enter in, that we would look inward and not at others. Lord, again, I just thank you so much for Easter, the message of Easter, and your willingness to go to that cross, the price you had to pay when you went ahead to do it. I thank you for that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen.